Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. Thanks to Danny V for letting us take over today. My name's Petronella McGovern and I'm an author of two psychological suspense books. And Danny has interviewed me in the past and she has also interviewed our guest today. Burr Carroll, otherwise known as B.M. Carroll, has written 10 books, which is an amazing achievement. And her new book, which is called You Had It Coming, so I'd like to welcome Burr Carroll to the podcast. Welcome, Burr. Thank you, Petronella. Now, 10 books, that is an incredible achievement. And I just want to say congratulations first. Thank so, you. So um, tell me when, what year was it when your first book came out? Oh, um, I think it was 2004. Um, but I always remember when I got my first phone call from my agent I was about eight months pregnant. Um, so I'm able to kind of gauge how long I've been at it from the age of my son, who's now 19. So That's an amazing achievement. And in terms of the industry, you know, it must have changed so much over the years, both, both the industry itself, but also Netflix and, you know, internet and streaming services. And um, what have, how, how have you found your writing process has changed over the years? Um, well, look, obviously, after 10 books, I, I hope I've become a bit better. At it. <laughs> <laughs> I've had plenty of practice. And there's lots of things that I, you know, I've learned from editors. And, um, and I have become, I've tried to become better at my craft. Every time I've got criticism or feedback, I've tried to say, okay, um, take it on the chin. And, you know, and now I can kind of 
identify when I'm a bit off with my pacing or if my character is a bit two dimensional or if there's just not enough going on. So there's lots of things that I can see myself without an editor needing to point it out to me. Um, but on the downside, you know, 10 novels equates to about 100 characters. So coming up with fresh new characters is it's really difficult and one of the things I find is you know what those characters do their profession and um, because I've always you know it's always been really important to me what a character does for a living um, and um, I, I feel like that's a big part of their identity and and you know I've had teachers and doctors and air stewards and electricians and every single even a concert pianist everything you can think of I've had in terms of professions and you know and now I find that you know I'm desperately seeking new things and new jobs so that I can build new characters and um, so I don't have to have a second or third or fourth teacher or you know so that's one thing that's that's hard. Yeah so I would want to talk about characters but I just want to ask you one more question about your experience before um, we move into the characters because you've got some fascinating characters in You Had It Coming which are a boxer and a paramedic uh, but you might have to turn to astronauts or something next. Is that right? I know. (laughs) (laughs) This is a call out to any astronauts out there or maybe I should just make a call out on social media. Please tell me what you do as your job and then meet me and tell me all about it. Although it is one of the things I love about writing is finding out what people do well that that was my question what do you love what do you love the most about the writing process or publishing like over your and I think I said 10 years before but I mean your 10 books which is which 10 books 20 years years. yeah 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 Um, it is it's finding out just finding out new stuff really about you know people and and life and and it's amazing because you know when you're at a dinner party and somebody says something obscure about something a lot of the time I kind of know it because it's you know something I find out through research so um in in this particular novel you can kind of see how far I'm you know how how difficult it is me I have I have a paramedic and I have a boxer both of whom you know had no idea whatsoever you know um, about these jobs um, and so I found out all sorts of things about both jobs and that that's really fun but it's also yeah. a bit scary because you're if you're writing from that perspective it's it's scary to try and pull off an entire viewpoint um, from a, a person where their job is important to who they are and and for it to be believable, that is, it's hard. Well, I think you've certainly done an amazing job in uh, You Had It Coming because it opens with this, uh, such a powerful and dramatic scene. And I want you to tell tell the listeners, can you explain that scene to the listeners, the first scene in You Had It Coming? Okay. Um, so the book opens with um, Megan and Megan is a paramedic and she's with her partner. Um, and um, they've just made a drop off at the hospital. Her shift is almost finished um, and they're on their way back to base. And when they get called to um, a shooting in a Sydney suburban home um, and anyone who lives in Sydney would know that gun crime here isn't very common. Um, and so, you know, this is a particularly worrying call and, and ICP, which is, you know, um, intensive care paramedics are usually sent out to those type of high acuity situations. And in this particular instance, there isn't one available. So it's literally Megan and her partner going to this 
into this um, scene. Um, and it is a shocking scene. Um, a man is um, lying in his driveway. He's been shot twice. Um, he's being assisted by neighbours, but they don't know his name. Um, and he's bleeding profusely um, internally and externally. He's lost consciousness. And, and so there's a, a frantic scene, you know, that happens as they're, you know, trying to stem the flow of blood and trying to stabilize him for transport. And um, and eventually they get him on a stretcher and the stretcher is being lifted into the ambulance. And, and finally, you know, there's light shining on this man, fully proper light, because in the driveway it wasn't, um, you know, it was dark. And, um, and Megan realized that she actually knows him and there's a few reasons she didn't recognize him and you know the lighting as I said being one of them but also the fact that she was concentrating so much on his wounds that she didn't look at his face and also she knows him from a long long time ago he's older his hair is whiter his skin is the color of death um, and and she is she knows his name and and this is a man who she hates and she realizes that she's just been trying to save his life when he is the person who ruined hers. Oh yeah, just give me goosebumps talking about it. It's such <laughs> um, it's such a powerful scene and everything about it because uh, for those in Sydney, the um, the book the, this scene is set in the leafy North Shore suburb of Kalara, as the uh, as the newspapers would say, um, where nothing like that happens. And so, from the moment when she's turning up to this shooting to the moment when she recognises this man as the man who ruined her life. Um, yeah, it's so dramatic. It's such an amazing opening and it takes you right into this book which um, concentrates on an, an incident that happened 10 or 12 years before. How many years 12 ago? years 12 ago years in before. the book, yeah. Yeah, an incident that happened when Megan and her friend Jess were teenagers and it's an incident that has had ramifications for the rest of their lives and now it's coming back 12 years later. And so, Burr, can you tell us what was the sort of inspiration for this book? Um, there was a few different things that inspired this book. And um, one of them was, um, so this particular man who's been shot is called William Newson, and he's a defence barrister. And so the inspiration by him for him happened many, many years ago when I was working on a different novel and I was um, seeking the assistance of a, a criminal lawyer. Um, and this particular criminal lawyer was, you know, really, she was very brilliant and dedicated and very tolerant of all my naive questions. But she was also at the time I was interviewing her, she was representing a woman who had stabbed her estranged husband to death on a Sydney freeway during oh, morning God. peak hour traffic. Oh, God. Um, Yes, and I think a lot of people in Sydney will remember that particular crime. It was a horrific crime and very, very shocking for witnesses and emergency services and, and the public. Anyway, I couldn't help deviating from my research to ask the lawyer, you know, why on earth would you want to defend this case? And, you know, what defense could there possibly be? Because this woman had stabbed her ex-husband repeatedly there was no question whatsoever about you know was it someone else yeah. it was you know she was detained by passers-by she was you know it was definitely her and and her answer to me was well because you know what happened on the freeway is only one part of the story and because everybody no matter what they've done deserves the best defense that they can get 
Um, and that really stuck with me. And, and ever since then, you know, whenever I've seen a segment on the news and, you know, somebody's got off some really bad crime and, you know, the barrister or the lawyer is talking inside the court and you can feel the kind of hatred towards the barrister or the lawyer. But, you know, they are doing their job and it's a necessary job and our, our legal system and our justice system wouldn't exist without, you know, people who are prepared to defend the in, indefensible as a such. And so this character, William Newton, the reason, you know, he, he is, um, is shot is because he has made his, you know, reputation and career from defending sexual assault cases. Um, and because of him, you know, more than one, um, you know, individual has not been convicted for their crimes um, and have gone on to re um, reoffend. So as you can imagine, there are a lot of people that really, really hate him. So that, that was one of the inspirations. The second inspiration is something a lot less dramatic than the stabbing on the um, Sydney freeway. Um, it's, a kind of, uh, it's a kind of funny kind of touristy story. Well, it's kind of funny now. Um, and it was when I was um, down in Manly with my mom. She was visiting from Ireland and we were walking along, you know, the Corso and having a lovely time. And, and um, there was... Um, a guy approaching us on a bike and you know when you if you live in Manly you would kind of recognize this type you know long dreadlocked hair carrying his surfboard um, barefoot and um, anyway he got his margins a little bit wrong and his surfboard hit my mum on the oh. thigh oh. at quite a speed I know he was going quite fast so it, it really hurt it really hurt and she didn't fall but you know she was pretty shocked and and suddenly we were at the center of this drama on the beachfront in Manly and um, you know the cyclist was apologizing profusely people were stopping to help and then suddenly in the middle of the drama there was an ambulance as if it had just conjured out of nowhere and what had happened you, is you that they had just been passing Oh, and so no one, seen, you hadn't called them. No one had called no. them. No. Oh, my God. It was literally there. They were there within seconds of it happening. <laughs> and they had seen it happen and just thought, oh, we're having a quiet moment. We'll just stop and see if this lady is okay. So my mum was ushered into the back of the ambulance. And let me tell you, you know, she, she was fine. I knew she was fine. So I was able to just concentrate on the paramedics who were very, very good looking. Um <laughs> And um, it became quite, you know, the family story. And um, but so and this was in the years well before, you know, ambulance reality TV shows. I kind of think yeah. I fell in love with paramedics that day, you know, the, their kindness and their capability and the fact they really were there before we even knew we needed them. And, oh, um, magic, and so magic. when the show started up, I was there, you know, I was there. I was, you know, mm. um, um tuned into every patient and every drama and every kindness and and it seemed inevitable that one day i'd have a character who was a paramedic well, they do sound uh, very uh, very magical um yes and yeah. i feel and i think you know you do know the third thing that i will i will i will i will tell our listeners yes burr and i do we okay. we are we were author friends and then we became friend friends and our sons ended up going to the same school and becoming best friends. So um, we know each other quite well. And we did go to a teenage, well, Burr did host a teenage party. And this, this book, You Had It Coming, it has its um, origins in a teenage party. So I'll let you, Burr, tell that story. Okay. Um, well, Petronella, as you know, this teenage party was very well planned and very um, carefully supervised. 
Um, but it still ended with an ambulance being called to her house and still ended with a girl, you know, lying unconscious on my living room floor who I thought was going to die. Um, and, and so it was a really traumatic night that not only added 10 years, you know, to my age, um, but also it was a, you know, a view into the vulnerability of teenagers and, you know, how how invincible they think they are um, and how one mistake or one party can have lifelong consequences. Um, and, and I guess when you're an adult, you, you forget what it feels like to be a teenager. And I think that was my first time and your first time because Petronella was one of the supervisors at this party. Um, well, we and obviously both failed terribly as supervisors. But well, anyway. we did call the ambulance <laughs> promptly. Um, so it was... It, it really was you do forget what it's like you forget what's what it's like and then suddenly you're there with them and you're looking around at them and they've got you know this pre-programmed desire to you know push the boundaries but they've none of the life skills mm. or the emotional intelligence to deal with the consequences so your book really ties into that hot topic of um teenage sexual assault yeah i mean the timing has been very interesting but it's not surprising as you say because it's a it's a problem that's been around for a long long time so i was coming at it with all the fears and concerns of a mother mm. um and like you petronella i'm the mom of both a teenage boy and a teenage girl um and you know i'm equally worried for both of them and i want to protect them both from decisions that could affect the rest of their lives um, and I was also using the novel to highlight that it's not just the boy and the girl or the boy and the boy or the girl and the girl or whatever combination may occur. Mm. It's the other parties who are also really deeply impacted, you know, mm. by these type of situation scenario and the lawyers and what can be said and not and can't be said in, in court, you know, which is often only a very, very tiny bit of the true story, you know gets examined through the court process um, and also I wanted to feature the families and the mothers and the fathers whose child have been have been hurt or damaged and and they're enduring anger yes and, and the friends as well the friends both of the yes. of the children and the friends yeah. of the parents the family friends and all of those which the book really looks at that that wide-ranging effect on the community the close community um, just when you're talking about the court, um, the, the book includes these really interesting snippets of court transcripts. So did you, um, what sort of research did you do for those court transcripts? And those tiny little transcripts were the hardest part of the book to write. <laughs> it's just impossible. Um, so I would write what I wanted to write and what I wanted to say. And then I had a criminal lawyer who was helping me and I would send it to him and he was like no Burr you can't say that and you can't say this and that couldn't be said in court and this can't oh. be said in court and so I was really getting an up close view about what can and what can't be said in court and how it needs to be you know um I guess what we see in tv is not a realistic um you know representation of what happens in the legal system your other character is um your other main character well, you've got you've got three main characters. So you've got Megan, the paramedic, and then you've got Jess, her friend, her former friend, who's a boxer. Now, tell us what what research did you do for boxing? Did you did you go in a fight? I had I didn't go in a fight, although um, they I, I went to a local 
boxing club and they were amazing. They were so welcoming. It's, I was kind of amazed by how welcoming and helpful people are. And, um, you know, so they would let me come down and watch them spar. I went to one or two of their fight nights. Um, and oh, I've I would have liked boxing. You, you should have brought me along. I oh, know I don't like boxing, so no, you shouldn't have. Well, I, I've always liked <laughs> boxing, but what I, I suppose what this experience, research experience, brought home to me was, you know, it's such a physical kind of combat, but all underlying it, there's such deep respect. Mm. Um, I would walk into this boxing gym, and the coach would look at one of the boys, and they'd run off to get me a seat. I felt like the queen visiting. <laughs> Um, they were amazing and I I really enjoyed that aspect of the research to the boxing Um, and and I suppose what I was trying to portray with Jess so Jess is Megan's former friend um, and you know she's a very tough uncompromising character and her reaction to the trauma that they faced was very very different to Megan's Um, and you know she's a fighter and she became a fighter because she wanted to fight battles that she had a chance of winning um, and so when she hears from Jess about, you know, this William Newson who's been shot, you know, she's very surprised to hear anything from, from um, sorry, when she hears from Megan about William Newson, um, she's very surprised to hear from her because, you know, they're no, they're no longer friends. Um, but also she's appalled at her first thought, which is you had it coming. And I think you set those two characters up so well that, that, um, Megan is more of a, you, you talk about the fight or flight response to trauma and um, yeah. Jess is certainly, she she's sort of fighting it and trying to control it. And um, Megan, I mean, post afterwards, after they've left school and uh, Megan goes travelling and goes overseas and tries to sort of fly away from, or literally fly away from it. Um, yeah, yeah, she ran away, whereas Jess, um, you know, didn't run mm-hmm. away from what happened. But their friendship didn't survive what happened in the long mm. run. And 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 from the story, none of the friendships seem to have survived. They haven't really stayed in touch with many people from school, have they? No, but it's a very divisive thing when something mm. like this happens. Um, it's a hugely divisive thing and very hard to get over. Um, and and there are some scenes in the book that, you know, that, go back to that time and and how it affected the girls and um and the things that they missed out because of it Mm -hmm. um normal you know rites of passage that you go through during your final year of school um that they were unable to participate in because of what had happened Mm. and your third main character is a detective um bridget bridget kennedy bridget kennedy (laughs) yes um and she's also a mother of teenagers so it's really interesting to get her perspective both both as a as a detective trying to investigate who's at who gunned down William Newson and also as a mother of teenagers who is watching what's happening and very aware of of how vulnerable her own children are yes and and look Bridget was very hard to write but also the easiest to write she was very hard to write in that it, it is you know I've never written a police procedural before I've never, I didn't set out to write from a detective's perspective, um, but but she had a very important role and a kind of, I couldn't avoid giving her a voice. So the kind of technical aspects of her role in the investigation were really hard, you know, to research and really hard to pull off and, you know, 
Um, but I was able to balance that with the fact that Bridget's personal life is utterly my personal life. I was able to pour all of my worries and concerns and comments. So when she's having conversations with her children, you know, about what is consent and what's not consent. And, you know, when she's seeing her daughter going out to parties and that pure dread you feel, you know, like, please come back safely. I was able to pour all of that into Bridget. So, um, you know, so she was my hardest character to write, but also the one I could identify with the most. Yes, and she's she's very... Very well done. I really like Bridget. I think she's young. Thank you. A lot of people really like Bridget, which I, I'm really happy about because, you know, and, and some people have said, oh, she's not like your normal detective, you know, your normal hard drinking, hard living chip on the shoulder detective. And she's not actually. And I didn't set out to create a different kind of defective, uh, detective. I was just trying to find some little niche in this book that I knew something about <laughs> and everything else, the paramedic and the boxer and the everything and the law, law and the detective stuff, everything else I knew nothing whatsoever about, you know, every time I'd go to write something, I'd have to go, oh crap, I've got to research that or, oh no, another thing I need to research. And, but whereas with Bridget's personal life and family life, I was, thank God, did not have to research that at all. It was, you know, I'm living it as you're living it. Yeah. So, um, and, um, and as a result, she seems to have really resonated with people that she's, you know, she's different. Well, and I guess she feels very real. And I mean, in real life, you know, not every detective is the hard drinking, you know, and there are yeah, detectives who yeah. are mothers and, you know, so yeah. certainly she's got to have that, that sort of life balance. And, you know, she's a great character. So this book is slightly, you, you've sort of moved away over your 10 books. You've you're sort of started in sort of women's fiction and then now you've moved to psychological suspense. And and this one is more, is even has more sort of this detective, detective thriller. Well, I'm just asking, did you deliberately move in this direction or did it just start interesting you or you're reading books that were, that you liked, that you're interested in following that sort of line? It was just, what was interesting me, I think I, I felt I'd exhausted all the themes of, you know, in women's fiction. I'd written seven novels, um, all with an Irish, Australian, you know, type of background and all kind of exploring this idea of what makes people move from one side of the world to the other. And um, and I was a bit bored of writing nice characters. <laughs> <laughs> So when I started to write The Missing Pieces of Sophie McCarthy, I knew straight away that Sophie was going to be not very nice and yeah. um, and more, you know, dark and complicated. Um, and I had a lot of fun writing her character. And the biggest part of the fun was trying to make her real. Like I, I wanted her, I wanted her to be darker, but I didn't want her to be a psychopath, you know? So yeah. I wanted her to be like someone, you know, we all know. And I think we all know, so Sophie's you know well get going beyond the name yeah. we all know that type you know that perfectionist type you know brilliant ambitious but also ruthless and cold um and um and you know changing genres I think um the character studies from writing female fiction really helped me define my niche um oh. so um it's I like to think of the characters I'm writing about now as ordinary everyday people, you know, who find themselves in extraordinary situations, but more than anything to me, it's, it's important that they're real and that people can recognize them and people will believe them. Yes. And certainly your book, which came out last year, unfortunately, right at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown, um, who we were, that was a, um, 
they they were very real characters in terms of turning up to a school reunion and and their past lives and how they'd changed since school. And I felt they were all very they were very real too, despite the uh, the suspense that was going on in that story. Thank you. Um, there were seven different perspectives in that book, so. Um... Yes. <laughs> now I, you're probably I, going to ask me about perspectives because well, <laughs> I was going to say this after your last two books. There's 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 a lot fewer perspectives in this book. <laughs> I know I've been really restrained with this book. There's only three, but let me tell you, writing um, so Sophie um, and um, who we were were written with seven perspectives each and I was aware while I was doing that that that's a big no-no um but in my defense with who we were it was a school reunion so you know I was channeling 80 odd perspectives down to seven which I thought was fair enough you know (laughs) Um, um and and with Sophie I was just having fun I was having a lot of fun you know with you know giving the good sides of her and the bad sides of her from you know the people around her um so with this novel, having the three perspectives, let me, let me tell you, was a lot less complicated. Um, but then there were other things in this novel that, you know, added to the complications. But it, um, I like having different perspectives. I think it helps a lot with the genre and, you know, in terms of keeping up the pace and, and building tension and being able to end a chapter with a little bit of a cliffhanger, but not having to deal with it straight away in the very next chapter because you you can divert to another character temporarily um, and leave the reader wondering for a bit and then you can finish the next chapter with a different cliffhanger so that the reader is you know is tense about everybody you know all the time so I, I I feel it lends itself to the genre very well and I think also in in sort of psychological suspense then you you don't know what other people are thinking and and for a reader jumping between character heads I think is really really interesting that that you know various characters don't know what the other characters know yes I like that yeah it's yeah it's it's fun to read and fun to write yes now I feel we could actually talk all day but um we do need to wrap up uh you won't believe we've nearly we've nearly uh, covered all our time off. Nearly, um, so <laughs> we both know we could talk all day. Uh, so We're I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I want to ask you two questions to to wrap yes. up. So the first question sort of relates to this idea of a you know the teenage party, which changes uh, Megan and Jess's lives and the lives of lots of people around them. And I want to ask you, not not necessarily a teenage party, and not necessarily for for bad or or good. But do you have one one moment in your life that's really changed the rest of your life or the course of your life? Um, I I do have one moment in my life that changed everything, and it was when my son was very young. He was only fifteen months. Um, he broke his leg and he ended up in hospital for four weeks. Um, and it's a long, long story about what happened, but I was very much working in the corporate world at the time. I was um, not there when it happened and it didn't get diagnosed quickly because I wasn't at home. And the incident really made me stop and take stock and and was part of the reason, it was part of my decision to kind of leave that world and become a writer. So I could work from home and that I was closer to what was happening. So that, that was definitely a defining moment for me um, in terms of my career and trying to balance 
a very, very busy job with being a new mother. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. I thought you were going to talk about moving to Australia, but there you go. Oh, I could have <laughs> talked about that, couldn't I? That was, but that was a funny one. That decision I just made a, on a complete and utter whim. I just decided I'm going to Australia. I had no idea. You know, really, I did no research because there was no internet then. I gave my sisters all my winter clothes and hopped on a plane and then arrived here in the middle of May when it was freezing cold and pouring rain. And I was very underdressed and thinking, well. (laughs) It's just like Ireland after all. (laughs) Luckily, the sun came out the following week. If I hadn't, I might not still be here. (laughs) Funny. Yeah. Yes, it's interesting. I asked you that question without thinking about it myself, but it is interesting if you look over your life, what moments sort of send things in different directions, um, I think. Yeah, and some of the decisions are very considered. Like Mm. when I decided to leave my corporate job, that was a really considered decision um, Mm. that I thought about very hard. And I found it a really hard decision to make because I did like my job and I had worked really hard to get to where I was and I was on a fast track program and... I remember my boss scratching his head and saying, I've never had one of my accountants leave to become an author before. Well, this is a first. (laughs) And so it was really, I felt like I'd let him down because he, you know, uh, I felt like I was letting everybody down. But um, so it was a very considered decision, you know, Um, but the decision to come to Australia was really looking back, very flighty, (laughs) very little substance behind it, you know, I mean, well, I think you should send your, send your old boss an email saying, I've just released my 10th book. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> and now finally, um, I know a lot of aspiring authors listen to this podcast. So I thought we might end with some advice from your many, many years of experience. Um, what advice can you give to aspiring authors about about getting the book written or the process or whatever you like? Most important advice, and I think you would agree with this, because one thing we do together as well as, you know, mother, teenage children and talk a lot about books and, you know, we're avid readers. And when you read a lot, you take in lots of things about characterization, about structure, about what works, what doesn't work, you know, which characters you believe and And everything I know about writing is all instinctive. It's not learned, you know, it's, it's, I've taken it in by reading and reading and reading and reading. Um, So that would be my first piece of advice. And I'm always astounded when I come across aspiring authors who say to me without even, you know, cracking a smile, oh, but I don't read very much. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I'm thinking that's fairly crucial, you know, that you read a lot. So, and the other thing I would say is, you know, um, just get on with it, get on with it and write what comes into your head and don't think about it too hard because if you think about it too hard, then, you know, you'll find all the reasons why you shouldn't do it and you'll, you know, start listening to your inner critic and you, you criticize yourself so much that you won't get a single word written down. So the most important thing is to get down what you want to say um, because a lot of your writing and polishing and fixing things happens after that first draft but if you don't have a first draft then you've got nothing to work on so Mm. you know if you're a new writer um don't be a perfectionist um yeah because if you are that will get in the way of well producing anything yeah i think that that's really really good advice both of those things and i think to read widely also to read all sorts of books and yeah books that you think aren't in your genre but maybe they are or you know to work out to just get a, to get a real sense of how people write 
and how you read and how people read as well. Yeah, and yeah, just get yeah. on with it. Don't don't stop criticizing yourself. That's a good that's a good uh, mm. good tip. Um, so thank you again, Danny, and the Words and Nerds podcast for having us on and taking over. As I said, this is Burr Carroll. She writes under B M Carroll, and her book. You Had It Coming is now out in the shops. And I'm Petronella McGovern, and thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Burr. Thank you, Petronella, and thank you, Danny.